0: Welcome to this third and last episode in the genomic research series. Now, we're gonna look at the ethical side of this question. So collectively, what are we going to have to decide on when it comes to the use of that data that's being collected? What are the ethical implications and also what are the policy uh, implications and the policy procedures that we might um, be expecting with a question like that? Now, who better to explore this field than a bioethicist and a sociologist? Today, we have James Hughes with us. He's the executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technology and this is a techno-progressive think tank. He's also the associate provost of the University of Massachusetts in Boston. You're listening to Healthcare Focus and I'm your host, Karina Paraskev. Healthcare Focus is the podcast where we follow healthcare news and industry research so you don't have to. So we're looking at a couple of topics today, and I wanted to dig right in and uh, start by looking at privacy concerns. So how do you feel when we're looking about um, topics like genomics and big data? How do you feel that the privacy landscape is changing?
1: Well, uh, we've been collecting data about citizens for, uh, as governments and as companies and corporations for more than 100 years. And with computerization in the last 50 years, we've been able to increasingly um, aggregate data in ways that compromise individuals' privacy. Now, in some ways, that's uh, to our advantage when Google knows everything that we watch and when we watch it, how we watch it. Um, It can recommend on YouTube or Netflix can recommend better things that we might also want to watch. There's many ways in which the aggregation of consumer data is good for the public and good for individuals. Um, One of the concerns about trying to limit the aggregation of health data, for instance, is that there are enormous epidemiological consequences of the patterns of disease in society. And so when we can uh, aggregate all that information and determine who's getting sick, where and why, um, we can actually make people healthier, when we can aggregate financial data about um, where people make money and how much they're employed and what kinds of things are being manufactured, we can keep track of the economy and try to keep it on track. So I think that uh, you know some of our concerns about privacy, um, people are voting with their feet. Our, this generation of millennials has been giving away an enormous amount of personal information often for nothing more than a second of pleasure, you know, fill out a survey in order to tell you what kind of Game of Thrones character you are and tell the world about everything that you are. Um, so I think uh, there's a certain amount of doublethink in a lot of people's minds about the question of privacy. But most of us would not like to live in a world without any privacy. There are things that we absolutely want to remain p- private um, about our personal lives. And the Europe, um, European Union has gone the farthest in creating laws that protect individual privacy, the, the right to be forgotten, which is uh, as yet largely untested, but um, an interesting effort to allow people to erase their uh, p- personal data when it gets into the public domain, uh, laws against <coughs> hacking and um, Uh, Attempts to close down access to various kinds of health information with laws like HIPAA. These are all extremely important ways of um, attempting to meet a public demand for certain kinds of privacy. Um, I think, though, that, as you suggest, there's some very problematic issues in this approach. One is that um, when you disclose something about yourself, even if you've made that decision, you're also disclosing something about other people as well. One of the things that's been happening as personal DNA testing has uh, consumer, direct-to-consumer DNA testing has been uh, spreading is that people are uh, increasingly discovering that their parents are not the parents that they thought that they had. Um, And that is basically a disclosure about the behavior of your parents or your uh, purported parents. Um, You uh, also disclose to your, or discover at least, uh, the health risks that your family has. So, what are the obligations? If you discover that you have uh, an inheritable genetic disorder, do you have an obligation to tell your next of kin or your children um, that they may also be sick? Um, we have laws around the mandated disclosure of sexually transmitted disease, which says you know that you're obliged to tell sexual partners if you have HIV and so forth. Um, why we don't have that with genetic disease, um, that you're obliged when, when you discover you have a genetic disease to tell others. Um, so we have a lot of questions around this, uh, this privacy interdependency, as you put it, Uh, it is certainly an issue. I don't think, um, it's an issue that is escapable. I think it's an inevitable nature of data, um, you know, that, uh, when you, file the sec requires that people file uh how much stock they own and what kinds of stock benefits they get so about certain kinds of people wealthy people we know an awful lot and therefore we also know something about their children and you know et cetera et cetera so um i think that that's really where the focus should be uh is that we want to ensure that everyone is as if we're all going to be transparent let's ensure everyone's transparent Um, And if the rich and powerful don't want to be transparent in the ways that everyone else is transparent, then they should enact, help us enact some laws to protect the realm of privacy. Um, And that means, as you put it here, uh, top down and bottom uh, up approaches, the the top down is certainly the important way to go. The, The vast majority of us do not have the time or inclination or legal resources to launch a class action lawsuit when we discover that um, you know that our financial or health details have been disclosed in a way that we don't like, mm-hmm. and so um, the people who need to do that are legislators. That needs to be a realm of democratic law. The problem, of course, is that democratic law works slowly and not very efficiently, um, and as a consequence, a lot of you know when we saw this recently when this this ongoing parade of tech giants uh, testifying before the U.S. Congress. And the congressmen say, well, how do you make money in Facebook, sir? And the guy says, well, we sell ads, congressman. Um, You know, it's like, well, what? I have an iPhone. Why does YouTube and, and Google control my iPhone? It's like, we don't, sir. That's a different product. You know, they're just too ignorant about technology. So when it comes to how we make, should make laws about technology, I have, uh, I, I'm an instinctive Democrat. I, demo, I, I definitely want to have it all be accountable to a democratic process. I don't want it to be you know, made in br- laws made in Brussels without any input from the people that they affect. Um, but on the other hand, I think that uh, in the realm of technology policy and in many, many areas of policy, um, it's impossible for democratic citizens, the, the average layperson, to really have the expertise to f- even frame the questions that need to be asked. And so in, that, in those domains, I think there's an enormous argument for a technocratic, the, the, uh, uh, the role of a technocratic bureaucracy. Um, of of outside technical experts. So I think there is a huge problem with uh, how we uh, hold accountable and autonomous and independent uh, regulatory action over um, complex technologies like the emerging uh, big data infrastructures of Facebook and Google and so forth.
0: All right, there's a lot of really interesting thoughts that are are sparked by, by the discussion here. One of them is Um, I'm looking at the different uh, legislations that exist right now, and you're mentioning there is a need for regulation, right? Um, And you're mentioning Europe, for example, did some really good things when it comes to privacy. But when I look at the way that the American law is uh, constructed, there doesn't seem to be a privacy law that... really tackles everything, right? Because it's been a, an amalgam of things we did over time. Um, and there's sort of a legacy that we have. The, the legislation that does exist is a little bit spread here and there throughout the law. Do you believe that the medical uh, aspect, so, so everything to do with the data related to me, you know medical data in a larger sense, so I'm also including devices like Fitbit and whatnot, do you feel that those Warrant a separate category of legislations that really target them, or is this part of a larger debate that also includes data on Facebook, you know, social media, and um, not not necessarily medical-specific data?
1: Well, the joke is, of course, that when the average man dies, he wants someone well-trusted, to destroy his browser history. So it's, he doesn't send one, someone to destroy his bank records. He doesn't send one someone to destroy his uh, health records. He wants his browsing history to be destroyed because that's the most embarrassing thing about it, his life. Um, and so I think in general, um, it's, I don't think health data is a special class of data. Um, I think the idea that people are going to be profiled because they have genetic risks, you know, I, I took 23andMe, I have celiac disease. I, I've had celiac disease since I was 19 years old. 23andMe told me I had a reduced risk of celiac disease, right? Um, all gen- genomic data is probabilistic. Um, now, there are some things which are almost 100% probable. So if you have Huntington's Korea uh a gene, you're probably going to get hunting in Korea and you may not want employers to know about that because you're going to die um, and, and they might not want to hire you. So there are certain kinds of uh, genomic uh, facts that um, will in fact affect your life if, if they're widely known. But, you know, the fact that you have XY or XX chromosomes, for most people, that's not going to be terribly enlightening for the people around you. <laughs> you know, just most people's uh, gender identity and their uh, genomic uh, gender identity are the same, and it's going to be the same, you know. But I suppose if you were trans, uh, a trans person and had gone through a uh, transition, you might want, not want people to know your, your genomic gender identity. Um, so there, there are some kinds of facts that uh, genomic data might release. Um, having had STD tests or having have a positive HIV status. These are kinds of things we've debated in the past that employers might want to know or lovers might want to know. We've had laws in the United States in the past that said that you had to have an STD test and you had to disclose your STD status to your potential uh, marriage partner. And I think that there's a legitimate argument for that. so, although I, I did avoid it when I got married because um, I was a bioethicist and, and all my colleagues said you should not uh, give in to Illinois' law that required that we have HIV tests. And my wife and I got married in Wisconsin, which should not require that. Um, at any rate, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of hype about um, uh, health data privacy. Um, HIPAA has gone a very long way and GINA, the law governing genetic information privacy, has gone a long way to um, caution everyone, to require that everyone be educated about uh, health data privacy um, and so forth. There are gaps, which is that there's now an enormous amount of health data being collected outside of health institutions. um, Those kinds of gaps should also be remedied and and addressed. Um, The FDA, for instance, uh, now has uh, an expanded capacity to look at um, algorithmic health uh, consumer devices. So, you know, this Fitbit that I'm wearing um, is tells me wh- how often I should walk, how many calories I've had, how many calories I've burned, and so forth. And um, as soon we will have, for instance, diabetes watches, uh, watches that give you real-time information about your blood sugar, also your blood pressure. Now, as opposed to how many steps I've taken, it's hard to harm me by lying to me about how many steps I've taken. If I'm a diabetic and it lies to me about um, my diabetes uh, status, my health, my blood sugar status, that could be significantly life-limiting. So um, I think that there's an enormous scope for uh, pre-approval of uh, uh, these kinds of health devices and for their regulation for consumer safety and, and for privacy.
0: And I've noticed too that, um, so what you're saying is interesting because there's a a risk factor to be mitigated when it comes to the approval process, but I also see a risk in terms of who accesses the data after. There's some data brokers on the market which will take seemingly unrelated data, and it might include things like your Fitbit or your glucose levels or or things like that, and they will make composite profiles that they, they can then resell outside on the market. And supposing that an industry such as insurance, which by the way, it does base a lot of its uh, models on statistics and probabilities, does get a hand on that, or an employer that would find these information out. I think, as you mentioned, there, there is a risk, a certain risk, um, even for something that may not seem very harmful. And I'm not certain that, first, the regulation supports this. I believe that there might be a gap there. And I'm not sure also that users are aware, as they're using all these devices, that this data is out there and is actually or can be collected.
1: Well, again, I'm not sure that health data is in a special category there. Um, I think, you know, that we, we have these uh, cases, this is a health example, but we have these cases of people Googling, you know, they're thinking, uh, am I pregnant? They Google, am I pregnant? And then all of a sudden they start receiving mail. says, since you're pregnant, you may want to buy this. And then the father, the husband says, what the hell? Um, so I, we do want to have certain kinds of uh, constraints on all kinds of information about people, the consumer behavior um, is being uh, aggregated without very much constraint at all. Um, all kinds of uh, voting behavior um, and, and, and economic uh, data, the value of your home, uh, the structure of your home, and so forth. All that's being put into huge number crunchers that determine how you will be marketed to, how you will be addressed as a voter. Um, and that kind of hype, what we call hyper nudging, the kind of uh, giving you little uh, rewards for, oh, you know, you, you give us this piece of information, you behave in this particular way, uh, good, we'll, we'll move you through the next phase of the maze. So um, I'm not sure that the health data is in a special category in, re- in regards to all that, um, I, but I do think that it is certainly one of the things that needs to be addressed in an, an overall uh, attempt to protect um, personal privacy.
0: Yeah. Now, when you're looking at having people that are part of the decision-making process, like you mentioned earlier, and you're saying now people who give away their their data freely for in exchange for little rewards, how do you see the the consensus um, building there, or at least the majority building? to going forward so that people actually do agree on certain practices or certain standards when you see that people are actually, some people like the millennials you mentioned, are ready to give away their data. How, how do you see that playing forward?
1: Well, unless the generations that come after the millennials change this trend, I think that there's an increasing degree of fatalism about um, the role of big data in our lives and the, the gradual erosion of privacy. And my colleague, David Brin, wrote a book uh, 18 years ago now arguing that eventually we would not have privacy. Um, and I think the question is, what c- can we imagine a liberal democratic future in which we don't have privacy? I think it's, it's possible to imagine it. But, um, you know, China is an example of a place that is using the aggregation of big data to explicitly um, have a totalitarian control of individual behavior, where they are linking debt worthiness with political trustworthiness, with the political trustworthiness of your friends on social media, with your consumer behavior, whether you're um, uh, earning good money, working enough, uh, and how you spend your leisure time, whether you're spending too much on computer games, whether you spend more on childcare care than, than leisure. Um, and all these things are being put it into a large uh, score that then determines whether you get loans, uh, are able to travel, are uh, able to get a government job and so forth. So I think that's an example of a totalitarian uh, lack of privacy being put to the use of totalitarian ends. I think it's possible to imagine um, uh, a realm where we have a, a smaller realm of personal data privacy in the future, but we still have a liberal democratic society. We still get to um, agitate for laws around things that we really care about. You know, let's say, okay, you can know the value of my home, but you can't know my HIV status, or you can know my blood sugar levels, you can't know my blood pressure, whatever we decide to do in the future. I think it's possible to imagine those kinds of negotiations in the future, but um, this all comes down to politics. Uh, The reason Europe has been able to enact more far-reaching data protection laws for individual privacy is because they have uh, a stronger social democratic left that is willing to go toe-to-toe with Google and Facebook and, and the data titans. Um, and, and tell the business world that you're just not allowed to do certain kinds of things in ways that are sometimes annoying. I mean, the GDPR is, uh, has a lot of annoying features to it that may not actually protect people in any way. But, um, but at least it was an effort. And, uh, and I think that the United States, we just don't have that same kind of countervailing social democratic uh, force to be able to stand up to the tech titans.
0: To your point, there's been a lot of discussion in terms of what could we do in the U.S. system itself, because as you mentioned, it may not be the same political landscape. And one of the ideas that came forth was this idea of commons, of creating a marketplace where people could get together, make contracts within groups that would stipulate under which conditions they were ready to release information, such as you know DNA, their DNA sequence and so on. And that marketplace would allow corporations, governments, research institutes to come in and uh, find that matchmaking that really responds to everyone's needs. Now, when I look at a model like this, I think, uh, first, it's interesting because it does give us an alternative, which does not rely on the democratic process such as we know it. It still works within the constraints and that, that we have currently. But the second aspect that really jumps at me when I look at this is that privacy and through dependency that we mentioned earlier. So uh, yes, it would give us autonomous groups that could make their own decisions and that's empowering. But what happens when the person next to me in that other group gives away data to a group I would not want to, and we have some connection in terms of the DNA we're sharing?
1: Right, well, in terms of politics and uh, these kinds of private um, collectivist uh, options, uh, those private collective options would only be able to be possible if they were created politically. So, at first, it takes politics to create those kinds of solutions. In the United States, um, we used to have laws that severely restricted health maintenance organizations and, pre- and prepaid health care, and then we changed those laws. So, it takes political change to create those kinds of uh, economic vehicles. I, I despair of individuals having to make those kinds of decisions. I mean, if really, if you were to be faced with the 5,000 kinds of data about you that could be released into public uh, sphere and try to come up with some kind of collective contract with other people, any group of other people about how you would release all that data and to whom and under what conditions, it's not a very likely prospect. Um, at the larger level, the largest collectivity of data sharing is the nation state. And we see Iceland uh, negotiated with a health firm that said, look, you, you want all of Icelanders gen- genomic data? You can have it. What you have to give us in return is these kinds of health services. And they had a quid pro quo. I can see those kinds of negotiations being made. Um, and I could see that at a political level, we could structure uh, uh, you know, you know, like three options. You know, you could have the most privacy concern and the least privacy concern, and whatever's in the middle, and then people could buy into or vote for or select one of those three options. But it, I don't think that this is going to happen in the bottom up way. It has to be a highly structured political decision.
0: All right. So, last question for you now. It's a little bit of. Uh... The, the Far West right right now everyone that comes in gets to do whatever they want so we're looking at firms like 23 and me but they're doing the exact same thing that for example a genomic center which might have more resources and perhaps a, a different way to, to look at the sequence so definitely really a, a difference there in the quality of what they might be able to produce but or a government uh, institute for example so um, how do you see all of this landscape moving? There's a lot of moving pieces. There's the power isn't really established. You don't really know where to vet. There's no legislation in place. Is that reminiscent at all of other industries where something started and slowly got organized?
1: Well, uh, I, I think one of the big questions that hangs over us is that 20th century forms of democratic empowerment have basically collapsed. The political parties as a form, um, for the most part of collapse, we see some uh, reemergence of the party forum. For instance, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party has expanded individual membership and participation, but most, for the most part, political parties are in decline and trade unions are in decline. Um, civic organizations and nonprofit organizations have tried to pick up the democratic slack to represent the public interest. Um, but uh, in many cases, civic organizations, nonprofits, are also in decline as, as at least, as democratic vehicles. And so I think what we have to figure out is: is there a way to reconstitute civic engagement and civic empowerment through electronic means? Because that's clearly the future. We're all going to be, we are all now co- connected internationally. But I don't see a Facebook group. Um, having the same kind of power to connect people and express their needs and their interests in the political sphere in the same way that a trade union or a political party did. So we have to figure out what are those new uh, modalities going to be? I think there will be modalities. I think there will be forms of political empowerment. And one of the things that they will have to address is uh, if everybody's pissed off about uh, their lack of privacy or the way that they're going being surveilled by corporations in the state, um, what are they going to do about it? They have to organize to do something about it. And we don't know how to organize to do those things yet um, because all of our existing forms of democracy don't work.
0: So in your opinion, it's all this regulation and this um, thought won't be a forethought. It will be more in a reactive mode. Once something does happen that people feel discontented about, then we would be able to address the issues because we'll know exactly what's wrong, how people feel about it, what direction we want to take. Whereas if you were trying to up the laws ahead of time, it, it might be more difficult to enact.
1: Well, I'm a futurist, and so it's by nature uh, we argue for anticipatory democracy because we want everybody to listen to what we have to say. It's like, oh, look, look what's coming. Look at those uh, rapids we have to run. Um, but in reality, very few examples of anticipatory democracy can be found, and most of them are dumb. Uh, you know, in bioethics, most of the examples of anticipatory democracy is like, oh, if we allow test tube babies, uh, we'll just be creating mountains of slaves that we, you know, we use in the coal mines. And that would be terrible. And it's like, no, it didn't really turn out that way. Um, so most of the things that people anticipate, anticipate about the future are just, woe- you know, they're, they're representations of the past, not of actually the future. So, um Again, that gets back to this, and I'm not sure that technocratic elites are that much better. I'm not saying that. Uh, that it's just that technocratic elites, uh, they tend to know more about the subject. So I think I, I, I do think that the democratic accountability that will come in this domain will be that people get pissed off about one thing or another, they will demand action. Uh, political parties and Congresses and legislatures will try to do something. They will call upon technical experts and will enact laws and those laws will have a lot of flaws. Um, So I just think that's the inevitable course of history.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for the interview, James. Yeah, my pleasure. In a couple of moments, we're going to share with you what's coming in the next episode. But if you think others just like you might enjoy this podcast, help us spread the word. Give us a quick rating, write us a review, or just share with a friend. Next episode, we're tackling a topic that is really near and dear to my heart. It's designing for healthcare. And it's going to be a two-part series starting in the Netherlands and ending in the second episode right back here in the United States. So this topic of designing for healthcare, we're going to be looking specifically in the next episode at designing for hospitals. And to get us there, we're going to have an amazing team of, of four uh, young people who have done very interesting research in terms of uh, designing in the hospital setting. It's Bob Kleunewelt, Tessa Deckers, Patricia D'Olivo, and Boudouin Boone. That's coming up next on Healthcare Focus. You've been listening to Healthcare Focus, and I'm Karina Paraske, your host. It's sometimes difficult to include all of the research resources we used without making the podcast too heavy, so we've created the show notes to give proper credit to all the ideas we've explored. Go check it out to find out more inspiration, and for more episodes just like this one, subscribe to us anywhere where you get your podcasts.